Every year, more than 500,000 Americans die with cancer, according to some figures from the American Cancer Society. How prepared are we to deal with it in the emergency rooms of our nation? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment focusing on cancer. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Arthur Dursey, Professor of Bioethics and Emergency Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Dursey is also an attorney, and he is Director of Medical and Legal Affairs at the Medical College of Wisconsin. His publication and research has focused on emergency medicine, ethics, and informed consent. He is co-author of the Code of Ethics for the American College of Emergency Physicians. We're discussing end-of-life issues, cancer, and the emergency department. Welcome, Dr. Dursey. Thank you. So tell us, as science goes forward and technology is prolonging life, sometimes in a positive way, how concerned have we been with prolonging the end of life? Well, I think as we have grown as a nation, as we have become more technologically competent, we've always been on the side of prolonging and preserving life. So in fact, we've been always interested in that. But the problem is, as we become technologically better, more capable of prolonging things, we've actually become perhaps too good. So what's happened is that our life-prolonging technologies are numerous, they're expensive, and we apply them, unfortunately, more universally than we should. We should be more selective about thinking about when we use technology to prolong life and when we really should accede to the fact that the end of life is coming. So how are we short-sighted? What types of things are we not doing? Well, one thing that we're not doing, and I think this is true for we as emergency physicians, but also for physicians in general, is that we are not as careful about thinking about the application of technology and for whom it's appropriate, and especially who would want it under the circumstances and who would not. The problem is that people at the end of life go through periods of inability to speak, to be able to communicate with their family members, and we assume that we should just go ahead and apply technology for everyone, and a number of people, if asked, would not want that technology. How much has the fear of litigation played a role? I worked with other ER doctors who coded every patient who arrested, always, not because they felt it was morally right, not because they didn't feel it was futile, it often was, but really they were afraid of getting sued for not doing more. Well, and I think that has been in the back of physicians' minds, unfortunately. And I say unfortunately because I don't think it's really a factor that should play a role. But it is true that we were taught in our residency that when in doubt, you should always resuscitate and you should always doubt. Even if someone would come in with a card or someone would say, I'm a family member, we really don't think this is right, or our loved one wouldn't want this, we were taught, you know, always err on the side of life. They can always later stop life-sustaining medical treatment. And I think that is a one-size-fits-all solution that just doesn't work. And the reality is that um, physicians have been worried for a long time about being sued if they didn't do everything. But there's actually not a great body of evidence to show that that's true. And in fact, there's some evidence to show that it's problematic if you try to force procedures on families and individuals who would not have wanted it under the circumstances. And also we've learned it's not so easy to turn off life support. That's sometimes a harder decision for the family than to not start it in the first place. That's really a good point because ethically and legally, 
beginning life support and ending it, are the decision to whether or not to begin it and, and to end it should not be any different. That is, if someone comes in and you say, we're going to go ahead and, and start things, you'd want to be able to do that. So you can say, well, let's see if it's going to work. And if it's not going to work or the person would not want it, let's go ahead and stop. But ironically, even though it doesn't make sense that they feel different, to a number of families, they do feel different. The reason that they aren't different is if you never start in the first place, you've essentially decided the matter just as you would have if you stopped treatment. And yet, many people feel, well, once we start, it feels bad to go ahead and pull back. But there are two good reasons to be able to stop life-sustaining medical treatment. One is, if it's ineffective, it's not working anymore, it's time to stop. Or two, the patient would not have wanted it under the circumstances. But if you say that, well, it's it's easy to, to not start, but if we're going to stop, it's hard, that means that you're not going to give a number of people who ought to be given the chance at least a, a trial of therapy. And then if that doesn't work, feel comfortable about stopping because it's not working, or feel comfortable about stopping because once you've learned more about the patient, you've learned more about the circumstances, you understand that the patient would not have wanted it, the family members don't think it's appropriate, and it is time to stop. And it's harder, the inverse, it's harder on the families because if mom or dad die and they have cancer already and they arrest in the ambulance and they don't come back to life, they can almost accept it. But if they get to the hospital, they're resuscitated, they're put on drips and and medicine and food and they say, you know, this isn't going to work, let's turn it off, then it's like we're asking them to play God and they have to give consent and they don't want to be in that position. Well, I think you are right. There's no question that coming to a family member and saying this decision is now in your hands is a terrible decision. And in fact, I don't actually think that it's always true. That is, in many cases, the medical situation will make a decision. And even if a family says do everything, everything may not work. Everything may be futile. And in the second case, the decisions are never really one person's decision. It's a shared decision-making between doctor and patient. And so if you, the doctor, have a recommendation, have an idea of what should happen under the circumstances medically, given all the factors, you ask for the shared decision-making, either with the patient or the family. But when the family is involved, it's really not they're making a decision. It's really they're expressing what the patient would have wanted if they know or what they think ought to happen. So it's really, it's a decision that's the family input or the patient's input and the doctor's input. So it's a shared decision. And I actually think that it's not a good thing for a doctor to go, well, we could keep the person on life support or we could stop. What do you want us to do? I think that's an unfair position to put a family in because, in fact, it's really, will this work? What's the goals of our therapy? And what would the patient have wanted? if they could have spoken to us about the situation. It's not really the family should make a decision. It's a terrible burden to place on a family. And you're right, if the resuscitation is unsuccessful or you never started it and you just come to tell the family things have happened, it's obviously something that they must accept and there's no decision for them to be made and so there's not that burden of that. And I think that's why there's a little bit of difference in feeling about not starting versus starting and trying it and then stopping. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to a special segment focusing on cancer on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Arthur Dursey. We're discussing end-of-life care in the emergency department. 
Dr. Dursey, with cancer, if patients are aware that they have a diagnosis that in some cases is terminal, are they any more likely to have addressed this issue in advance with their will or their personal papers or power of um, healthcare surrogate? Well, interestingly, studies show that people who are diagnosed with cancer or who have a diagnosis of AIDS, something in which they realize that death may be a possibility, are more likely to have filled out an advance directive or to have discussed this with their their doctor than people who are not. And there's some logic to that. That is, most people don't think about these things until they have to. But the reality is, in the general population, about a quarter of people have, have discussed this and made out an advance directive that is a direction in advance to their doctor telling them who is going to be speaking for them when they're no longer able to speak and what their preferences are about life-sustaining medical treatment. And if they know they have the diagnosis of cancer, then it's about half of those patients. But interestingly, the other half don't ever have that discussion, fill out the form, make plans about end of life. So this is why the end of life issues are still very prominent. And in half the cases that we have, there's been no expression of what the patient would want under the circumstances. And now often they're no longer able to tell us. Are doctors themselves any more fastidious about end of life issues personally when they're the ones who are diagnosed with cancer? being a health professional does give you a certain understanding of what may happen. And I've had a number of doctors say, well, we're going to do everything in this case because the family wants this and I don't think it's the right thing to do. And man, I would never want this to happen to me. And I think, well, I think you need to at least be honest and express, you know, your feelings about this to the family so they understand that doing everything means a whole lot of medical interventions that may be painful, that may prolong the dying process. The other thing is that, as we know from books and films, such as The Doctor, physicians who have been diagnosed with an illness, especially one that is possibly terminal illness, do have a new understanding of exactly what their patients are going through. And it's not required to be empathetic, that is, to be able to understand the patient's position. But I think they have a a new understanding and doctors then do fill out those advanced directives and make those plans. So that knowledge gives them a certain insight both about their patient situation and now their own situation. i never forget, there was an attending at the VA in Miami who was getting older, and he told my ward team, and I was a young intern back then, how he and his wife had a 15-page living will giving almost every foreseeable medical choice from feeding tubes to Foley's and how they wanted their care if they couldn't speak for themselves. But getting back to the general public, how well can they understand the real issues, the difference between treating an infection if you have cancer, which may be appropriate, versus intubation and CPR from infiltrative disease and a pericardial effusion? How do we clarify that for our our patients? I think that originally when people were looking at this problem, they thought what we need is for the public to really understand all the things that could happen, and then please let us know in an advance directive exactly how you'd like this to be able to be approached. I think what we're finding out from some research is that if you ask people, the most important thing for them is not as much what will be done under the circumstances, but more 
who will be the people that I want to be involved in making a decision if I can't speak, and what kind of values do I want them to know that I have? So, in other words, instead of saying, I want CPR, I don't want intubation, I don't know about antibiotics, all these things, that's way too much stuff for the normal person to have. Instead, the normal person says, I trust this person or my family to be able to care about me. I trust this person to know what I want under the circumstances and to be able to express that. And I trust my doctor to be able to understand my my general medical situation and recommend my to my family the things that need to be done. And if I know that those are in place and I've signed in a directive giving this person this power to be able to speak for me, a power of attorney for health care, and I know my family and I know my doctor that's all I really need. I don't want a bunch of forms that ask me, do I want this? Do I want that? Because my family and my doctor, if they're together on this and they come to an understanding and they know what I want, they'll make the right or best decision. See, I I think what you just said is very important. And that may be one of the take home points for our listening audience. The discussion you should have with your patients isn't just, do you want CPR? Do you have a will or a living will? It may be, do you have someone that'll respect your wishes and make this decision for you? And maybe this should be part of your first office visit and maybe looked at yearly on follow-up office visits. Would you consider that? Oh, that's an absolutely essential thing. And thank you for bringing that up because these kinds of decisions are best brought up before there's a crisis, although, of course, no one wants to really talk about them before there is. But it's like making a will out if you're married and have children. You want to be able to provide for them. You certainly aren't thinking about your imminent death, but you do know that someday that will come and you need to be able to provide and you need to be able to think about this ahead of time. So also in the medical situation, the discussion of this should be routine and it should be so routine that if a patient says, well, doctor, why are you bringing this up to me? The doctor's response is because I bring it up with all my patients because this is a part of our general medical exam and we you know, ask about whether or not you have an advanced directive and whether or not you have someone who may be able to speak for you if you're not able to speak when you're non-decisional. And it should be a routine part of the, the encounter. Now, I realize given the pressures for everything else that this is not something that would be a part of a yearly exam, but it might be every other year, every third year, something that would just remind people, revisit, and give them the opportunity to fill it out. And interestingly, these directives can be assisted by nurses, social workers, other people, but the main discussion about the fact that at some point most people will face end of life but unfortunately will be unable to express what they want about that is something that I think is the doctor's message that really needs to get across in the examination room. Thank you, Dr. Dursey, for being my guest. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Johnson. We've been discussing cancer care of the terminally ill patient who presents to the emergency room. I am Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to a special segment focusing on cancer on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. And thank you for listening.